Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese-American perspective. Here, we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S.-Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese-Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Politicus. My name is Angela Samoz, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Denise Borges. Hi, Denise. How are you? I'm doing great. My esteemed almighty uh, chairperson for Palkas. <laughs> it's, it's like a love fest every introduction. I love it. I, I have to um, do a new, a new one with every single uh, podcast. Right, right, right. So today, I mean, I'm excited about every episode, but I'm I'm really excited about uh, today's guest because he is our first military guest. I, you know, my father was in the National Guard. My grandfather served in World War II. My husband was in the Navy. I have a strong affinity for the armed forces and uh, lots of respect for for the military. And so we are honored to have Lieutenant Colonel Eduardo Pires here, who is in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence Security. So welcome, Lieutenant Colonel. Thanks for for the invitation. Again, I'm I'm honored to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. No, well, and first, thank you for your service to our country. It's um, quite quite the the honor and sacrifice. So we thank you for your service. Thanks. It's always nice to hear that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, we have your resume in front of us, and both Denise and I are just super impressed. And so, can you give us a little bit about your, you know, tell our listeners about your background and how you got to where you are. You know, what interested you in, in joining the Air Force? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously I was, uh, you know, it's, it's not in that bio, but I was, uh, came from, from Portugal, from Terceira, the Azores, when I was a year old, uh, raised in New Bedford. I think we'll obviously have an opportunity to talk more about, you know, the uh, kind of that background. But as sure. far as kind of the, the Air Force, when I, I had gone to school for uh, at the University of Massachusetts and I was going to be a teacher and kind of as around the time that I was getting ready to graduate started to consider it and I loved history but I was in teaching I, I felt like I needed something more I started to be attracted to government service whether it was maybe something that used some of those skills maybe it was you know whether it was CIA or FBI or Department of State or something but I thought that it'd be easier to, since those are very competitive, there might be easier to, as an entry point, to use the military. So ended up enlisting uh, a couple of years later, crossed over and became a, a commissioned officer. And I just you know, never ended up leaving because I loved the job, loved being able to, uh, to travel, to be part of a team um, in defense of the nation. Um, it was really just kind of a tight-knit bond. Uh, and I got to do some things uh, over the years that I, I never, uh, you know, otherwise would have been able to do. So mm-hmm. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to do that. Lieutenant Colonel Peters, uh, first of all, as Andrew said, thank you for your service. I, I, I too, uh, I don't come from a military family, but I do have a military person. My, my son, my, uh, my eldest son, mm-hmm. Stephen. Uh, he is, uh, he is in the Navy. He's actually. Uh, uh, and does uh, nuclear submarines and uh, has made a career out of it, something that he didn't think uh, much like you probably. He 
uh, enlisted after, right after college, and he thought that he would probably just do, you know, a couple of uh, tours of duty and maybe, you know, four years, and now, you know, 17 years later, he's still there. Let's talk a little bit about your Portuguese background. Uh, impressive, of course, you were born in Tercei, you came over, as you said, very, very young at the age of one. I see by your pronunciation that you probably still do speak Portuguese. And how was that upbringing in Matt, in your Bedford and in Massachusetts? And what do you recall of that upbringing? And from a um, recent interview that you did and a couple of pieces that were done, and we can graduate you on those in the Portuguese press, uh, both at the regional level and national level in Portugal, and the archipelago of the Azores, you mentioned that you visited frequently the islands, and uh, or especially Terceira, obviously, and your freguesia, your parish of Santa Barbara. Can you go back a little bit uh, to those uh, those times and that upbringing of the Portuguese American community in Massachusetts and your frequent contacts to Terceira and how that shaped you, who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, I mean, I was uh, I was one, pretty young age, but you know, those of you that have been in New Bedford and a lot of Portuguese American communities, obviously, it's a little bit of a microcosm. I mean. I had my aunts and uncles that were there and then, you know, extended family and cousins uh, were all immigrants as well. So we kind of lived uh, either close together. And of course we went to, went to Portuguese restaurants, we went to, we went to mass with, uh, with, you know, other Portuguese and, you know, my parents kind of all probably all, all worked at uh, either at a, at a same factory or factories close together where, you know, where Portuguese was spoken. And then obviously there was, Festas and other things throughout the year that you know continue to to maintain that influence. Um, and certainly at home, I, I spoke spoke Portuguese uh, and then obviously English as well. So grew up bilingual and started school. So you know, growing up, I, I, considering this this question, I think you know what is what have I taken from my from my heritage? And, and a, a few things, I think one um, kind of the that work ethic that that many immigrants seem to have um, just out of necessity that, you know, hard work can pay off, especially when combined like things like, like education. So my parents, you know, they're, they're frugal, they worked hard. Um, they made sacrifices to put my sister and I through, through private school, um, which was certainly was, was not cheap then. It's not cheap now. And I think that that paid dividends. And then other things too, I think that, that I've kind of carried with me just the importance of family and also a uh, kind of a diverse perspective, I think, um, going into the military where I, I work with um, men and women, you know, from, from all over the world uh, who've come to America as well, like me and others that have obviously, that have, that have been here for many generations. As far as Seda, I was, you know, I got to, like I'd say every two or three years, go back to the Azores with my family. Um, and that was awesome. I got to see the uh, again my extended family cousins who uh, who had not immigrated or in in the later years and my aunts and uncles did move back. I got to see them as well. Spent many summers, uh, you know, s swimming, going to bullfights, eating great food, festas, hanging out with family. Um, those are you know just incredible memories for me. And then that I've you know even as an adult I've I've gotten to go back although. Not as frequently and and not for as long, but it's been awesome and it reinforced again a lot of those uh, those feelings and ties that I had growing up uh, in New Bedford. You mentioned um, how your you know the upbringing helped you relate to you know other folks that maybe were also immigrants or had diverse backgrounds, and 
Can you expand a little bit on that and even maybe touch on uh, the language aspect, um, if that has helped uh, in any way or, you know, opened doors and opportunities that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, again, I mean, I obviously, the, the name sounds, it creates some confusion, I think, for some people who've maybe you know, haven't met a, uh, a Portuguese person or one of one of our heritage, and they. So the first assumption is like, okay, hey, you're, you're Spanish or Hispanic. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm Portuguese, and they're like, oh, cool. So that would open up a lot of lines of conversation mm. with, with with people in the military, and then I'd say too, kind of maybe uh, an in with other immigrants like myself who have joined the military and saw that as an opportunity, but I think. You know, in the military, you've, you've got people from that have come from you know all walks of life, political and ethnic, racial, gender diversity, and you've got to be able to to bring them together as a team. So to be able to to kind of relate to that, coming from an immigrant community helps, but certainly then being stationed kind of all over the world and working with uh, with a diverse group of individuals um, has helped as well. But mm-hmm. the the bilingual piece uh, has has helped me. I think just kind of broadening pers- my perspective. I-, I was stationed in Europe. I never got stationed in the, in Portugal, unfortunately. Um, although I did get to um, when I was in Afghanistan, I actually ran into the uh, the Portuguese army, which was awesome. And I got to to talk with them, and we watched a uh, a European Cup. Uh, soccer match was really cool so i got to very cool bond with them a little bit and kind of see their uh their bar although we couldn't as u.s service members we were not able to to partake in that but it was uh it's a pretty unique moment i think to be able to you know world away in afghanistan and run into the uh, you know some fellow military members from the uh my native uh land so that's pretty cool Mm-hmm. There's uh, probably, obviously, there are many uh, ethnicities, as you said, uh, that compose, of course, our, our great country. And, and uh, but Portuguese haven't had a, in a, a, a num- significantly speaking, in numbers, a great big percentage have gone into the military. Uh, you see more and more young Portuguese Americans now. Uh, although, you know, uh, we've had people in the military ever since, you know, the, the world wars here that were Portuguese background, but. A lot of uh, young people now are looking at the, at the military uh, as an option, especially I've seen that uh, being in education. I've seen that especially in the last, I would say, 12 to 15 years. First of all, if someone young, Portuguese-American, that listens to the podcast or some of our listeners who have uh, uh, young children who are uh, in their teenage years and thinking about their careers, about their future. Uh, first of all, if you can give us a little bit of a, of a, what should someone consider when going into the military? And second of all, uh, it's impressive how, of course, all of, as uh, Angela mentioned, all of your assignments and your uh, awards and decorations, but also if, uh, how your promotions have gone. I mean, you've gone from second lieutenant in 2001 to lieutenant colonel in 2016. I mean, that's a short amount of time in the military for such growth, you know, from second lieutenant, just for those uh, listeners, uh, you go to first lieutenant and Captain Major and Lieutenant Colonel. So it's kind of a twofold question. The first part is uh, young people who are listening or parents who have young people who are thinking about the military, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, And second of all, once you're there, uh, how do you build up the career uh, in the military? 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great question, and I get to to, to talk to. Uh, I, I get it from sometimes from from young people or from parents who'd be like, "Hey, you know, like we've thought about this as well, you know," and ask me about my career and, and my perspective. So, the first thing I'd say is like you have to understand like the good and the bad. It, it is it is not an easy life. Uh, you know, it's it's going to take you away from from your family and friends uh, certainly and. And once you you join for whatever period that you stay, you know you're you're going to be subject to the needs of 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 the military and the nation and what they need you to do. So I've gotten to do a lot of things. I've also had to move, you know, over a dozen times and gotten to deploy, obviously, to uh, to some distant lands and and potentially be in, in harm's way. On the other hand, you know, some of the opportunities that it's given me, I think, you know, for the for this person going in, you know, for maybe just a short term or that ends up staying for longer, you get to be part of something, you know, greater than yourself. To to serve the nation um, in its defense, to be part of a team, and to be able to do things that you really wouldn't be able to do otherwise at the at the entry level and age that you're being asked to do, uh, to take on the responsibilities that you are. Um, it comes with some benefits as well. There's certainly things like like education, I, my uh, my master's degree. Actually, I've, I've got two in the military now, and and both of them have, have been paid for by the Air Force. So that has that's been nice. Those aren't cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things as well. Certainly, healthcare and housing and, and other benefits um, that come with it. But the um, the opportunity to travel to uh, to gain greater perspectives, to to meet other people who are doing the same thing that you are. And the tight knit bonds and the camaraderie that you gain, I think, is is really hard in, in some ways to to describe. I think to people that maybe haven't been through that experience, because I, I can talk to anybody, whether it's in the Air Force or the, the Army or the Marines, and they've already got a, a kind of a common background or, or baseline in some ways. And we all know that you know we can rely on each other, you know, when things are at their worst. Um, and that's that's a real strength, I think. You mentioned a couple of things that echo a lot of what my husband has said um, in terms of the travel and also the camaraderie um, experienced serving in the military. And in fact, his his father was the one that that encouraged him to go see the world. And the best way to do that is you know join the military. And so he actually joined right out of high school. And so you're absolutely right. You hit on some really great points there. So thank you. The idea, though, that uh, it is it is still a dangerous job. I mean, yes. you know, uh, it's uh, you can go see the world, and uh, but some of the parents, of course, that I speak with when they're uh, and I'm talking mostly uh, since I was a Portuguese language teacher for a uh, quarter of a century, most of my uh, students uh, were either uh, Portuguese or Hispanic, taking uh, Portuguese, and a lot of them is, of course, the the, the fear of war. I mean, it's um, it can happen. You were you were uh, you were in some very dangerous places. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know that was one of my one of my mom's big worries. I think when she uh, when I was entering was that um, the danger, and you know what what I've always told her is like, look, I mean, it's it, it, there's certainly some risk, um, and uh, you know when you join the military, you don't necessarily get to decide what you're going to do and, and where you're going to go. So that's um, I've you know, been fortunate to be an intelligence officer. So I haven't 
always, you know, necessarily been in, in harm's way, like maybe a, uh, an infantryman or a special forces guy or, mm-hmm. um, out in battle. I, I have been, you know, I have flown in Afghanistan and been shot at or have, you know, rockets, um, fired at my base and things like that. But I'd never felt, you know, maybe that I was at the same risk as someone who was, you know, going out maybe and engaging in, um, much more, you know, combat in much closer quarters. So there's, there's certainly risk, um, mm-hmm. in the military, depending on, on the, the job that you're doing and, you know, where and when you're doing it, but that's, that's something that, you know, you know, going into it that you, you've got to understand that we all commit that that's, that's part of the, uh, that's part of the mission. Um, mm-hmm. and that we're willing to lay down our, our lives, uh, in defense of the nation, if, if, if it comes to that. Right. Let's talk a little bit about your current role to the extent that you can talk about it. Um, you know, what, uh, I guess what you work on, if there's anything that you'd like our listeners to know, like, you know, civilians, it's important for people to know whatever. Um, and then I know we also wanted to get your take on the, the air base in, in Lajes. And I know that you don't have a lot of detail, but I'm sure people would be interested to hear your perspective on what's happening there. Yeah. So my, my, my career is as an intelligence officer, I, you know, I think sometimes, um, you know, the view of, of what we do in the, in the military or and intelligence is, I think somewhat maybe distorted by what you might see in, you know, in movies and, and, and TV. Um, it, it's exaggerated uh, in, in many ways, obviously, but glamorized a little bit. <laughs> it is. I mean, I'd say that there's, there have been moments in, in my career that have, that have certainly uh, been pretty memorable, but I, I, you know, I'm no kind of, uh, you know, 007 or anything like that, but um, at its most basic point, uh, intelligence officers in the military are trying to find out what the threats are to our military and to our nation and how to, how to best defeat those. So much of my career has been uh, in supporting aircraft in combat, like like the A-10 or sort of special operations forces, but then later on uh, in dealing with reconnaissance aircraft um, that the Air Force has, like the U-2 or the Global Hawk. Uh, and then in later years, you know, as you get more senior in background and I've been at um, headquarters and staff positions, you start to get, uh, obviously, a little bit further away from the, from the front lines, and now you're dealing with the requirements at a, at a much higher level. Whether it's the you know the Air Force more kind of more senior headquarters types or uh, congressional and and White House requirements. So, uh, so here's my second stint uh, actually um, in the Pentagon. I was previously on Joint Staff, and now I'm going to the. Uh, to the Undersecretary of Defense for for Intelligence under the uh, under the Officer of the Secretary of Defense. So, basically, what I'm working on is how do we put our forces in the best position to be able to find out what the bad guys are doing, whether they're again, you know, obviously the terrorists that we've been dealing with for the last couple of decades, or in potential competitors and uh, and threats that we see from elsewhere, like in the Pacific. Um, in Europe. So get to do, deal with some, some interesting problem sets uh, and then really trying to 
figure out how to uh, how to resource the military with with what we've got to be able to get after those. And it's it's been pretty awesome. Uh, I can say like every day in my job is different. Um, it's never boring, but it can certainly be challenging. Um, and I obviously I uh, free to at least you know to the extent that I can to to expand on that maybe with some some examples as well. That'd be great. So I'd say, okay, so here, here's an example, I think maybe that, that serves kind of the, hey, what, what could you expect to do in the military? And maybe what, what, is, what is intelligence like? So my first assignment in the Air Force, I'm a you know, 20-something, two-striper, some obviously like the most junior uh, of enlisted personnel. So I came in in, in the late 90s uh, and we were, the Air Force was involved in an air campaign along with NATO to basically stop uh, some of the ethnic genocide that was going on in, in Kosovo on behalf of the, or prosecuted by the, by the Serbian armed forces. So our job was to support the, uh, the U-2 and we were doing that remotely via satellite from a base in, uh, in Northern California. So we had a team of analysts working there who were supporting a U-2 that was flying half a world away um, in the Adri- you know, in the Adriatic, that was trying to take pictures of Serbian military equipment that was being used to uh, to kill uh, ethnic uh, Kosovars. So, during those missions, I, I recall this, this one time that basically I was we had found some um, some enemy equipment. It was uh, it was a Serbian fighter jet that was on an airfield. Uh, so there was again, it was a team of analysts that had read out the the imagery that you two and that was downlinked to us and came down to us. And then that was passed to me and I was in communications with basically via, you know, even then like uh, an online chat to uh, another analyst like myself who was on board a, uh, a Navy cruiser in the Mediterranean with, with Tomahawk cruise missiles. And as soon as I, we, I transmitted that information, and again, there's certainly a lot of checks to confirm that as part of the team, but I transmitted that information. He came back and said, great, that's all we were waiting on. We just launched a, uh, a Tomahawk uh, cruise missile at it. And then, you know, later on, we were able to confirm that that was uh, equipment was destroyed and was no longer going to be used by the Serbian military. That really, to me, I mean, struck me here. I am, you know, again, a 20 something entry level junior enlisted uh, airman. And I just, as part of a, a targeting chain, made helped, you know, be part of a decision that that was, you know, millions of dollars uh, in both munitions and also some strategic import. I don't know that that level of responsibility would have been carried, you know, by a by maybe a civilian counterpart um, doing another job. So that that to me was. Uh, I want to say that it got me hooked, but it, it was in some ways really um, exhilarating to be part of that team um, and to help the U.S. campaign and ultimately was was a successful one to, to stop that a campaign of ethnic cleansing. So, Yeah, very, very, very powerful in, indeed. And um, the second part of the, the, the Angela's uh, question about uh, Tersaida, I know that, uh, of course, uh, from a policy standpoint, you, you can comment on that. And uh, you know, who can? But um, being from the island and knowing that the 
Americans um, are part of, uh, of the history of Terceira, uh, you know, for over 60 years now, uh, a total different base than the base that when I was uh, being raised up as a kid in the 1960s in, uh, in Terceira. How, you know, from a military aspect and from your experience in intelligence, give us your perspective of what you can on, on the airbase and uh, the Terceira uh, connection with the United States. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I these opinions are my own, and, and certainly not sure. uh, not informed by you know by anything else. And, and frankly, I don't really know much um, about lodges, you know, beyond you know, kind of what you've seen in the press. What what I can say, I mean, I think that has been a tremendously important base for decades. It was a, a strategic location since at least World War II. For the United Kingdom, and then and then later the uh, the U.S. Air Force and the Americans. So, uh, unfortunately, I think that base has been a victim, like a lot of our European bases, just of a general downsizing since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Having said that, I, I mean, I, I think certainly, while our footprint has has contracted there a bit, I don't know that that's always going to be the case. Uh, you know, having been at the Pentagon now for for a couple of assignments. I know that the requirements are constantly evolving, that the, the White House and the Secretary of Defense are always evaluating what our requirements are, and we're always looking for um, to meet those. So there are opportunities that could certainly present themselves in the future, whether it's you know potentially for, I think, for, for training or for, for different um, you know, requirements that, that may evolve. Um, as as time goes on, so I think it's it's hard to say kind of what what that future will hold, but I, I think it it could certainly change um, mm-hmm. beyond where it is there, and and I certainly lodges is going to remain a, a, a strategically important base, I think, and uh, and Portugal a a very important partner and longtime friend to the U.S. And, and, and that you mentioned, you know, Portugal's a partner, and you mentioned uh, alliances. I, I, in, in your line of work, in, in the in the work of intelligence uh, for the U.S. and you know to keep our country safe, and as you said, to look at uh, all the bad players that are out there, whether especially in the last uh, uh, couple of decades with terrorism, etc. How important um, are these alliances? How important is this contact uh, with our allies in the intelligence community? Uh, they're they're extremely important. Um, so we have agreements um, with our you know ally and partner nations to be able to share intelligence. In some cases, they also provide access that we wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah, we we would have a a much I think more diminished and less capable uh, intelligence apparatus if without our partners and allies, we would know a lot less about what's going on in the world and we'd be certainly less prepared to be able to deal with that. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I've worked on certainly many things that we've been able to, to, to share with our partners and allies within the classification agreements that we've got. So we've always said that we, uh, it's really hard to go to war uh, without, a, you know, partners and allies and just, just as uh, likewise, it is, it is difficult to, to prepare and kind of be aware of, uh, what the threats are out there when you don't have friends on your side. 
Angela, I don't know if you have uh, any other questions. I have one other final one, if it's okay with you. Or no, you go ahead. A... Yeah, okay. go ahead. We're coming up on our time, so go ahead. I know, I know. I saw the time frame. And again, Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for your time. Um, we, My last question, and um, and it's not a $64,000 question by any means, but uh, it is, you know, in the in a very polarized world that we are living in. It's not just the United States. The European Union is living in a very polarized world as well. How does the military uh, stay above this political polarization that we have and that we're living in modern times, whether it be here or, or in any other country? But how does, the, how does one stay above the fray, let's put it this way, above what is going on in, uh, in politics itself? Uh, because, of course, the military is uh, independent branches, but uh, you know it, it has to follow somewhat of uh, the political structure. Um, how does one? How does one do one's job and just you know stay away from all the different polarization? Because from what I hear from you, there's a lot more camaraderie sometimes in the military than there is in other aspects of civilian life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that that's a great question. You know, I mean, and I am a you know what you might term like a a political and news junkie. So I, I look at all kinds of sources of information, and and I'm always following kind of what's going on, certainly in, in the nation, elections and likewise, but and all sure. over the world. But um, so, and I got this, uh, a similar question from one of the news magazines in, in Portugal too, in, in recent days. And it was funny. He was asking me, he was like, Hey, do you know Trump? What do you think of him? What do, <laughs> Yo, what do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, about everything that's going on. And, uh, you know, my answer was like, look, the military, it is, it is drummed into us uh, in our training, but also as a legal requirement, you know, that we have to remain apolitical. The public cannot see us as taking sides one way or another. So um, certainly privately, you know, we have discussions about you know, what we think about what's going on, um, but we, do, we really strive to not let those things bleed into to, to what we're doing and, and certainly not um, in the public sphere. So privately, uh, you know, what, what I told them this is in, in the private sphere was that we're, you know, have just the same rights as, uh, as anyone else. And I, you know, I, along with hopefully, you know, the rest of the American public is able to make our, our views known through the electoral process. Uh, we've got a big one coming up, obviously, this being a, a presidential election year. So that's, that's how I intend to, to make my voice heard anyway. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was uh, it's been yeah. fascinating talk. I uh, fascinating uh, uh, conversation, Angela. Um, and yeah. so I will uh, defer it to you for the closing uh, <laughs> remarks. And uh, sure. again, Lieutenant uh, Eduardo Pires. Uh, I'll use the Portuguese pronunciation. Pires. It probably throws some of our listeners off. Um, um, but uh, thank you so much. It's uh, it's been an honor having you here in Politicus. Uh, thank you again for your service. And um, and it's uh, it's. Uh, it's wonderful to, to hear such a thoughtful analysis. Well, thank yes, you so sir. much for the opportunity. It's, uh, I'm honored uh, by your invitation and, you know, to be able to represent the Portuguese American community and my heritage as a, uh, uh, being from Sid and, and the Azores and hopefully, you know, serving as an example maybe of uh, what other Portuguese Americans can do in, uh, in service to the nation. Yeah, I think it's a, you're an excellent example, and I hope um, some of our listeners have been inspired and shared this conversation with uh, maybe some young folks in their life um, that are you know trying to figure out w what their path will be. 
<clears throat> and so uh, I echo Denisha's thanks and, and sentiments. So uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pyers, thank you so much for your time. And thank you everybody out there for listening uh, to another episode of Politicus. If you have not hit subscribe, please do so now and share this episode and share the, the entire podcast with friends and family um, so that we can continue broadening the conversation. And, and, um, and if you have suggestions of folks for us to interview, uh, please let us know. And, and we want to bring those folks into the conversation as well. And if you have a few minutes, please write us a review on iTunes as that will really help other Portuguese Americans find the Politicus uh, podcast and join the conversation because uh, you know, one, the best way to, to solve our world's problems is through conversation. So yeah. we are having those and, um, and uh, thank you again, everybody. And uh, thank you, Denise. Thank you, Angela. And, and until next time, have a wonderful day. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about Palcus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus.palcus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palkus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.